talking about precipitation. I'm talking Father God, He gave Jesus the nations, and He's ruling now, even over pagans. One day He's coming back. You just gotta have patience. All hell. King Jesus. All hell. King Jesus. All hell. King Jesus. All hell. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome to Dat Pulse Mill Podcast, where the four of us stand at the four corners of America, trying to hold back the winds of dispensationalism. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> we are pretty. It, it would take us like two weeks to travel from like every one of our houses if you bit it, went in a big circle. Seriously, it's just funny that there are four of us at the four corners, basically. Yeah, we should change the name of the podcast to the Four Horsemen, bro. <laughs> Dustin, we need you to move to Seattle. Well, can, I be, can I be Ric Flair? <laughs> Wasn't he one of the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse? Colin, Colin, you have to you have to move to San Diego then. Yeah, no, I'm far enough south. I don't need to go to San Diego. It's okay. <laughs> How are you guys doing this week? Doing good. It's starting to it's starting to warm up out here. So it was like it was like 80, 90 degrees driving home today. It was like I was dying. I saw snow. <laughs> really? It's starting to warm up in Arizona at ninety degrees. That's hilarious. I'm not in Arizona though. So come on now. Where are you? I thought you were in Arizona. I'm in Southern California. Bro, I did not know that. This whole time I thought you were in Arizona. Shaney's in Arizona. Man, I've been... I'm I'm sorry, bro. I apologize. Get your dad post mail straight, bro. It's a bro. good thing you didn't come on this episode or I would have had to think of something else to say in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> that worked out. Cool. Well, speaking of dispensationalism, that's kind of the, the topic of this week. Why don't we... Uh, I think we're going to... Start off with talking about covenant theology, kind of 101, and then get into some of the errors of dispensationalism and maybe talk about the binding of Satan. We have a, a little bit of disagreement amongst us, so that could be a fun conversation at the end. Hey, real quick, we wanted to give a shout out to um, our man, uh, Jovan McKenzie. Jovan? Jovan? Jovan. Anybody actually Jovan. know how to say his name? Hoven? <laughs> Mr. McKenzie, who uh, did the, the intro, outro mid segments all our music uh we use the song of his um all hail uh it's a great post mill song and uh, we've had a few people ask us about it so if you click on our website on any of the episodes or any blog post article on the right side you'll see a link to amazon you can go check it out support him um he's got some some good tunes so check it out don't you see that jesus purchased me see the blood on that mercy seat as a man he was born in bethlehem but he's from eternity now that's bible michael 5 2 you believe he's god yes i do the only hero to die for the villains that's poetic like haiku i was pathetic and prideful all right thanks for listening to that post mail we are going to talk today about covenant theology 101 just going to walk through the real basics of what covenant theology teaches. So covenant theology, historic covenant theology, holds to three different primary covenants that we that we see in scripture. The first one is called the covenant of redemption. The second is the covenant of works. And the third is the covenant of grace. And I'm just going to define those briefly and then we'll talk about them. Um, the covenant of redemption is the covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in eternity past to save a particular group of people uh, for themselves. And that involves, um, that involves the giving of the elect to the Son, the Son purchasing the elect with his blood, the Holy Spirit applying that work to the elect in history. 
the covenant of works was given to Adam before the fall, wherein eternal life was promised to him and his posterity on the condition of perfect obedience. Obviously, that that covenant was broken at the fall, and then the covenant of grace is the application of the covenant of redemption in history. So this is the covenant of grace is the covenant between God and man, wherein salvation and eternal life is promised on faith rather than on perfect obedience. So faith in Christ who had perfect obedience on our behalf. I would like to recommend for covenant covenant redemption, Charles Hodge um, is the one who really opened my eyes on on just the idea of this covenant that took place in all eternity past between the Trinity. And I would just really recommend his understanding on that. It's really good. Awesome. And uh, I'll, I'll plug a couple other resources once we get close to the end too. But um, I'm, I'm actually going to jump straight into Scripture here. And let's first talk about the covenant of works because this is the first thing that we see in Scripture as we read through chronologically. Um, so we've already been through before the, the whole dominion mandate that was getting, given to Adam. Um, and part of, part of that and where the covenant of works is really exemplified is in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so there is the the promise of eternal life. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden that was including the tree of life, which would give him eternal life. It was a sacrament symbolizing the eternal life that was promised to him uh, based on perfect obedience. And if he were disobedient, the covenant would be broken. And rather than receiving eternal life, he would receive death. And in Genesis 3, we see that covenant broken. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. Fascinating thing about uh, chapter 3 here is that he starts with the serpent. Now, according to chapters 1 and 2, man was given dominion over the beasts of the field. And here it starts with the serpent. The serpent comes to the woman. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her. And he ate it. The eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So here the covenant is broken, and most people think that the woman who was the first to sin was the first to break the covenant, and she was indeed violating the covenant. But since the covenant was made to Adam first, and life promised to his posterity, Adam is the one who is ultimately at fault because he was the one who was supposed to be in charge of his wife. And he stood there and allowed her to rather obey the voice of God through him, through Adam. 
She instead obeyed the voice of the serpent whom she was supposed to be ruling over. So it completely turns the created order upside down. And rather than having God, man, woman, beast, it's completely flipped flipped upside down. Uh, beast, woman, man, and then ultimately God, putting, the, putting God last of all in their place of uh, authority, which is why it was so blasphemous. And then, of course, we see the curse, and in the curse is also the promise of, of redemption, which is the first ins- institution of the covenant of grace. But we'll get back to that. Hosea 6, verse 7, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. So this is speaking of Israel and Judah, saying that like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. So Adam transgressed a covenant, they likewise transgressed a covenant. Only reason that I bring that up is some people have difficulty understanding how Genesis 1 through 3 could be dealing with a covenant without using the term covenant. Uh, But here we have an example in Hosea where it's a reference back to Adam violating a covenant, even though the word covenant isn't used explicitly in the beginning. The elements of the covenant are still there. Now we're going to go over to Romans 5, and here's where we see that Adam is really the one who's at fault. Um, So I'm in Romans 5, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, so that's Adam. Sin came into the world through Adam, not through Eve and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there's no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were sinning, was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man much more, will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so see, here we have Adam being described as the cause of all men being sinful. All men are imputed with Adam's sin because he was our covenant head or federal head. If you've heard of federal headship, that's what we're talking about. That means that because Adam sinned, all his posterity after him were imputed with that sin. And likewise, in the covenant of redemption, when Christ purchases the elect with his blood, he, his perfect obedience is imputed to them, and that makes them righteous and therefore pleasing to God and able to be saved based on the covenant of works. So Christ actually fulfills the covenant of works on our behalf, and that is what the covenant of redemption is all about. So now let's go talk more about the covenant of redemption. I'm going to go to Psalm Chapter 110. We have read this before, so it will be very familiar to you. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So here's a promise from the Father to the Son 
to sit at his right hand till he makes his enemies his footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. There's a promise from the Father to the Son that there are a particular people who will offer themselves freely in holy garments, in righteousness. And uh, then in verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the priestly nature of Christ is essential in this swearing promise that the Father makes to the Son. He swears that Christ will be a priest. So that is, before the foundations of the world, it was determined that there would be a need for salvation, and thus the need for a priest to mediate. And Christ is that ultimate priest. And in verse 5, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter the kings on the day of his wrath. He'll execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. That last part, referring to the brook, by the way, drinking by a brook is something that you do in a time of peace. And so there's there's a promise not just of the salvation of individual people, but ultimately uh, the redemption of the world as well as part of this uh, inter-Trinitarian covenant of redemption. Now I'm going to jump over to Zechariah chapter 6, and I'm going to start in verse 12. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. So this council of peace between the man, the branch, and the Lord is the covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son, because we know that Christ is the branch. Christ is the branch who sits on his throne and is a priest on his throne at the same time. So this all ties back to Psalm 110 and the promise that he would build the temple as being part of the building the church that Christ does. This is all related to the covenant of redemption. So now let's let's go over to John chapter... 6, and I'm going to start in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Christ, in his perfect obedience, saves the elect by his death on the cross. The Holy Spirit brings those elect to him, because the Father, in eternity past, gave the Son a particular people. And that's, once again, that's all about the covenant of redemption. So now I'm going to go over to John chapter 10, starting in verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. 
The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is hired, a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay my life down, that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So this, this is, once again, is all Jesus talking about the particular people that he gathers to himself, and it was he was charged by the Father specifically with saving those people. Continuing in verse 19, There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of a blind? At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Here, again, is an explanation of the covenant redemption between the Father and the Son, their unity in the process of saving a particular people, and the definition of the people for whom Christ died here is the ones who are believing. Because remember, Jesus lays his life down for the sheep, and here he says, you're not my sheep because you do not believe. And last but not least, the covenant of grace. Now I'm going to go all the way back to Genesis 3 first, because this is where we first see the covenant of grace. And this is in the curse to the serpent, starting verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now this is a promise by God that to the serpent that the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent would be at enmity with each other, and that in the process the offspring of the woman would bruise the serpent's head, and the serpent would bruise the offspring of the woman's heel. Now, if a venomous snake bites your heel, what's going to happen to you? You're going to die. So even from the beginning, it's promised that whoever this person is that's going to come redeem mankind, he's going to die, lay down his life in the process. And that's why, according to that promise, um, because they had violated the covenant of works, they were no longer permitted to eat the tree of life. But, I'm going to go down to verse 20 and we'll see what happens. The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Now these clothings covered their shame, symbolizing the covering 
of shame that would also ultimately come through the offspring of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. And so that was a symbol of the promise given to them. And then after that, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and, and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out, and at the east of the garden he placed a cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So he was cut off from the tree of life, unable to obtain eternal life on his own, but promised to have eternal life obtained on his behalf through the seed of the woman. And the covenant of grace comes from that belief. And here we have in Genesis 15, God's covenant with Abraham. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven. Number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and, it, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Abraham was credited righteousness, righteousness that was obtained for him by Christ. And that righteousness was applied to him because he had faith. And so that condition of faith was met by Abraham, and thus God gave him the righteousness of Christ and imputed it to him. That is the covenant of grace. And that's the same way that it works in the new covenant today. By faith, we are saved. Can I jump in here sure. for a second? I think one of the interesting things about this um, breakup of the, of the different covenants is it's it's different than most people think because I I think I I grew up thinking that the covenant of works related to all of the Old Testament, and I remember thinking as a as a young believer that the covenant of works really had to do with you know keeping the commandments in order to get to heaven um, in the Old Testament, and then an Old Testament Jew could have done that in order to to have good favor with God, and so I think that. Especially somebody who's not brought up in covenant theology, they may think of like Old Testament is works, New Testament is grace, but really the covenant of grace is all throughout the Old Testament as evidenced um, by Hebrews, you know, the hall of faith where mm -hmm. the, the saints of old um, obtained the promise through faith and not by what they actually did. Right. And I, th I think that's a, an important distinction or an important point to, to kind of emphasize because so often people think of Old Testament works, no grace, and uh, kind of like harsh, like a harsh environment, where where in fact God's covenant of grace was fully on display in in many, many, many instances. Absolutely, yeah. And um, the Hall of Faith is great too because it actually points out some things that most people wouldn't think are. Uh, our acts of faith, like, you know, we think about the, um, we look at the midwives in Egypt who lied to the Pharaoh and we're like, oh, wow, I, I don't know if I would be comfortable with doing that. But it says that they were actually honored for their faith in lying to Pharaoh to save people. And uh, Rahab, the same uh, 
demonstrated her faith by hiding the spies. So here's here's a prostitute who has faith enough faith in God to risk her life um, um, on behalf of God's people, and so she's actually eventually included in the line of Christ. So it's lots of cool stuff like that. Cool. Well, with that, um, we will be right back in a few minutes. Stay tuned. Even though we still on earth, uh-huh. in heavenly places we're seated. Woo. Ephesians 2, you should read it. Uh-huh. It's only because we're in Jesus. Yeah. Well, I don't think some believe it. So. And I don't think that they see it. They, they think the church is defeated. What? But why we call him King Jesus? Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Dat Postmail Podcast. What we wanted to do in this segment is talk a little bit about the errors of dispensationalism. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, um, chances are you didn't grow up as a post-millennialist. Um, I know everybody here did not. I was fortunate enough to, to know about post-millennialism back in my, my early teens because of my father. But um, for the most part, we've all been exposed, at least in some part, to, to dispensational theology. And it really does seep its way into Christian culture so that there are just like these things that we say as believers. There's just these, these, um, this Christian language that, that kind of pervades our Christian evangelicalism. And, um, and a lot of them come from bad theology. Now I'm, now for, for instance, I'm thinking of things like just even like the song, like I'll fly away or, um, or just the idea of, of, you know, the rapture and, you know, I, or do you really want to be doing this sin when, when Christ returns and, and, and just kind of all these different type of, there's a lot just that just kind of seeps into our, our subconscious, I think through this. And so maybe we could talk a little bit about some of the, some of the blatant errors when it comes to dispensationalism. And, and one of the things, one of the things, the hallmarks of dispensationalism is, is chopping up the Bible into various dispensations, right? Into various various areas of where God dealt differently with different people. Yeah. Now, while it is, now while it is true, God did do um, deal with certain people certain ways. Um, for instance, God didn't generally give the law to to the rest of the nations in the Old Testament. Although you know God did send Jonah to Nineveh, and there were there were various points in where he he did reach out to to other nations, but so in that sense God did kind of deal differently. But as we just talked about with the, the with covenant theology, um, the the covenant of of works um, started off everything. We have the covenant of grace where God um, deals with the world generally. And so we don't need to to chop up the the Bible, or as or as dispensationalists would say, rightly dividing the word of truth. Wrongly dividing the word it, of truth. It, wrongly divide, yeah. Yeah. It, the chopping up the Bible into to various sections where God um, has a whole, basically a whole different economy of of how He yeah. deals with people in different yeah. different ways. Yeah, I think I think one of the confusions is that the word dispensation itself is. Uh, is like a bad thing. The word dispensation is in the Reformed Confessions, and it's in the Bible. Yeah. So we don't want to throw out the word dispensation completely. Uh, the error of dispensationalism is not the word dispensation. It's what they believe about the dispensations. So biblically, the term dispensation is just used to refer to a, you know a period of time in history where things were different for one reason or another. So that part they get correct. Um, but as the Westminster Confession states, God has not 
two covenants of grace, but one covenant of grace under various dispensations. So it's it's one plan for it's one plan for salvation for all history, um, simply uh, under dispensations until it came to full realization in the new covenant. But what the dispensationalists traditionally have believed, and when I say traditionally, I mean the classical dispensationalists like Darby and Schofield. Um, the classical dispensationalists believed that history was divided into seven dispensations, and they defined each dispensation as a period of time where God had a certain trial or test that was set forth, and every period, every dispensation ends in failure, thus resulting in a new dispensation. So they start and say the first dispensation was the promise of life to Adam in the garden. Adam failed. Okay, we're going to have to start with a new plan. That was the plan that God made immediately at thereafter. But that all failed because the flood had to happen because the world got so evil. So God had to destroy the world and start over with Noah. Try a different plan. That worked all the way up until uh, up to uh, to Abraham. And then God decided to have a different plan. And that worked all the way up until... Moses, and that was a different plan. That worked all the way up uh, until the people of Israel rejected Jesus, and then he had a different plan. And so the, the biggest, biggest difference is discontinuity all over the place. It's a focus on discontinuity rather than continuity. One of the biggest places where we see the discontinuity is the separation between Israel and the church. And this this difference is easily reconciled by by passage, the passage in the New Testament says, not all Israel is Israel, or is of Israel. Meaning that not every one part who was part of the visible covenant in the Old Testament was part of the, the, the true Israel. And so the true Israel has always been um, the, the true people of God, the invisible church who, who we know are, are, or who the Lord knows are believers. So the one i think the biggest the biggest error in my view of cuz even with this even with chopping up the dispensations the way that they do um i could even get i could even get on with the idea that you know god did god was more gracious or less gracious depending how you look at it uh, toward certain people but well, I mean, that's probably not a good way of thinking of it but because god's just no matter what but you know what I'm saying, like what we consider harsh or not harsh. Um, but the the biggest error is the splitting up of Israel and the church. Right. Uh, that to me is where I get the most hung up. Yeah, and yeah. I think part of I think part of the confusion comes because um, most people are not familiar with the original languages of the Bible, and that's I mean I'm not super super familiar with the original languages of the Bible. But the word church is actually a translation of a term that doesn't really mean what we think of when we think of church. The word church in, in Greek is ekklesia, and ekklesia just means called out assembly or congrega congregation. In the New Testament, that very word is used when quoting the Old Testament. And when the New Testament authors quote the New Testament, they're usually quoting the Septuagint which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was the Bible translation that they were using in the first century. And the term ekklesia is used throughout the Septuagint. 
the Old Testament, translated into Greek, uses the word ekklesia to refer to the, the assembly of Israel, the congregation of the people of God. And so when the New Testament authors use that term and apply it to what we call the New Testament church, they're not talking about a different entity. They're talking about the same entity. So then the, the mystery or the, the new aspect of the New Covenant, the thing that was so different from the Old Covenant, is not that it's the church now. What's different is that now the church includes uncircumcised people because beforehand the church was defined by circumcision. Now it's not. Circumcision was the sign of the people of Israel and the sign for Israel changed. The people of Israel now are defined as the church that we think of in the new covenant. So the old covenant with Israel, Israel was called God's wife. The new covenant, the church, is called the bride of Christ. It's the same entity. The difference is the inclusion of the Gentiles. Yeah, and talking about the the inclusion of the Gentiles, um, when we when we go back and we see in the Old Testament, there are there are many people that were included that in in the covenant that weren't actually you know part of the physical people. They were people that were brought yeah, in. Yeah. And and we so we see hints of the New Testament. Um, full realization of of the that, that covenant yeah and the difference is in the old in the old test that's that's another confusion that's brought on by dispensationalism most people think that israel is a genetic or a biological relation to abraham but that's not that concept isn't in the bible anywhere now abraham's offspring were all circumcised and therefore all considered the people of god but some of them were excluded for unbelief. For example, Ishmael. God specifically told Abraham that he would not obtain the promises and that he would be cut off from his people. And in fact, he was. He was exiled with his mother. And the same thing happened to Esau. He was eventually cut off from his people and the promise went through Jacob instead of through Esau. So even some of the physical descendants, they began as the people of God, but they were eventually cut off. And that same sort of thing continues to happen where people are grafted in. For example, um, during the time of Esther, if you guys remember the story of Esther, um, there was a guy who was trying to get all the Jews killed. Esther's like, this is bad, and I have a chance to try to save them. So she did, and it worked. She actually got the, but couldn't get the command completely revoked. The command was to let everybody, anybody could kill Jews and take their stuff and nothing bad would happen to them. So then the, a new decree was issued that the Jews could defend themselves. And it actually says, many people became Jews. That's Esther 8.17. Now, if Jew is something that's biological, relation to Abraham, primarily, then that doesn't make sense. That you makes can't no sense. become yeah. a Jew because you can't change your ethnicity. You can't change that aspect, the biological aspect of your relation to Abraham. But they were covenantally united to Abraham, and that's biblically what's meant by the term Jew. Um, and when we come to the New Covenant, that's why we see a, con a, a conflict between the Jews, because they were defined by circumcision, covenantal relation to Abraham. And now that promise was given to Gentiles who were uncircumcised. And so they were freaking out, saying, how is this even possible? And that's why there were a lot of Jews who were subsequently cut off for unbelief. Romans chapter 11. And that was the that was the why Paul was dealing with not all Israel is Israel. It's not the children of the flesh, that is circumcision, who are the children of promise, but the uh, 
but the children of promise are counted as offspring or regarded as offspring. So that means that even if you weren't a child of the flesh, but you are a child of the promise, you're still regarded, you're counted as offspring. So that means that we are literally offspring of Abraham, because offspring never meant just biological descent. It was spiritual offspring as well. So covenantal offspring. Even the, even the concept of family, biblically, is not really a biological concept. It's a covenantal concept. Because if you think about it, husband and a wife who can't produce children, um, they adopt. Is that person not their child? It's absolutely their child. Right? We would not say, no. we would not say that, a, that an adopted person is not actually the son or daughter of, his, of the parents who adopted him. Right, and you talk to somebody who you know may have some bitterness regarding their biological parents. Would say, you know, that's not my that's not my dad. You know, he didn't raise me. Who's my dad? My dad's the one who raised me. My mom's the my mom and my dad. Those are the ones who raised me. They're my parents. They're my real parents. So they even have this deep seated understanding of the covenantal relationship that exists between the family. It's not just a biological one. What comes to my mind is, and forgive me, I'm a little congested, but is the the whole accusation that covenant theology or the reform perspective is a replacement theology. And this, I think this comes from the exact thing that Colin is bringing up, this misunderstanding that somehow the church used to be this ethnic, you know, state kind of blood thing, whereas then it became a new in the new dispensation under Christ. Now it's of faith and it's by grace and, it's a totally different thing. But when we understand the covenants, when we see that um, all who have the faith of Abraham are Abraham's seed, which, which Paul argues in Romans and Galatians, um, Jesus himself also calls out the Pharisees and lets them know that, well, your father's not Abraham. If your father was Abraham, you'd rejoice to see me like he does. Um, but your, your father's actually of the, of the devil, you know. And they picked up stones to stone him. They understood exactly what he was saying. So Jesus comes along and is correcting this understanding of what it means to be Israel, what it means to be God's people. That it doesn't matter who your daddy is. It matters where your faith is. It matters who your God is, who you're faithful to. And I think that's a huge thing because when people want to accuse, when the dispensationalists cry out replacement theology, they really it's a really misnomer argument because we're not replacing anything. We're calling for the understanding that God's people have always been those who have faith in him, those who are connected to Abraham by faith. Yeah. What about this, though? I mean, I'm talking about replacement theology. The the people who are dispensationalists would take would take Israel, uh, ethnic Israel today, like the state of the nation of Israel, that's, you know, m many of which are not actually ethnic Jews, Jews currently. They would take those people and and put them as those with whom God has favor, when they are an anti-Christ, anti-God religion or a state that has most rampant abortion and most leaning abortion policies ever, state-funded abortions, they have um, they are openly hostile to to Christian missionaries and Christian churches. Um, they they have uh, many different wars of aggression. And so we have we have a state that um, Christians are are blindly uh, supporting, even though their policies um, 
their social policies, their foreign policies are totally antithetical to the word of God. Yeah, yeah. And if you think think about it this way for a second, people who uh, reject dispensationalism from any vein, like whether you totally affirm covenant theology or not, like Lutherans reject covenant theology, but they still understand the, the relationship of the Israel to the church properly. Everybody before Darby affirmed that the church was nothing more than the continuation of Israel from the Old Testament. So uh, it's always just one people of God throughout history until you get to Darby. And then Darby's the one who says there's two people of God. And then people who say, no, the church is Israel are seen as saying the church replaces Israel. But we're not actually saying that the church replaces Israel. We're saying that Israel was the church and the church is Israel. They're one entity. There's continuity between them, not a replacement. We're not replacing biological national Israel with the church. We're saying that biological national Israel, um, if you want to think of it that way, just isn't the people of God unless they repent and come to faith in Christ. Yeah. So, so it's not a replacement because they could have faith and be the people of God, just like anybody else. And in fact, it's the dispensationalists who are replacing Israel. It's the dispensationalists who think because Israel rejected Christ, their covenant, their promise, their their plan that God was working was temporarily suspended, set aside and replaced with the church age. Yeah. Yeah, and you notice we haven't even we haven't even really touched on any of the the end times scenarios that that kind of go through the dispensational um, worldview and grid. Once you start to understand how they venerate Israel over and above the church, and they believe that that Israel is really the wife of God, so there's the bride of Christ and the wife of God, so so God is polygamous in his in his relationship to to his two different and distinct separate people. Um, so once they once they they elevate the nation state of Israel and and the physical bloodline of of Jewish people, what happens is you need. A, an eschatological system or like a like an apocalyptic scenario in which Israel is p- plugged back into God's prophetic calendar and the church has to be removed from it right so so God can continue to to con- continue to work out his plan of redemption through them or really not even redemption of of animal sacrifices as a memorial and and lots of things that that are totally antithetical to scripture yeah i remember a uh... Presbyterian memes meme a while back they posted it was a picture of John Hagee and it was it said uh, repent and believe the gospel just kidding you're a Jew yeah yeah and that's that's one of the very 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 problematic yeah. um, views that come out of dispensationalism now most dispensationalists do not go that far John Hagee is just being consistent with the principles behind right. it because he's he's taking a hyper dispensationalist view that people who are biologically related to Abraham can't be saved by the gospel. They have to be saved by works. And that's, I mean, that's heresy. Everybody is, nobody can be saved apart from the gospel. Nobody is ever saved by works unless it's Christ works, in which case it's not our works anyway. So it's, yeah, yeah. you see what I'm Christ saying. Christ didn't say to disciple the nations except for Israel. Leave those guys right. alone. <laughs> They're good. Disciple all the nations, not just, not just everybody, but Israel. Mm-hmm. I want to read a real quick quote from A.W. Pink, um, where he is pretty serious. He says, 
But there is further reason, and a pressing one today, why we should write upon our present subject, and that is to expose the modern and pernicious error of dispensationalism. This is a device of the enemy designed to rob the children of no small part of that bread which their Heavenly Father has provided for their souls, a device wherein the wily serpent appears as an angel of light, feigning to make the Bible a new book by simplifying much in, in it which perplexes the spiritually unlearned. It is sad to see how widely successful the devil has, has been by means of this subtle innovation. I thought that was a pretty harsh calling out of dispensationalism, but something that uh, definitely was necessary, and even in his time, and more so in ours. He's, he was a dispensationalist. There actually, you can still find his writings from when he was a dispensationalist. He changed his view, and when he changed his view, he became very adamantly opposed to his formal, former views. Mm. So, very good stuff. Yeah. Sweet. Well, we will be back in just a few minutes to talk about the binding of Satan. I can't imagine how folks feel. They don't know that this host real. They don't know about post mill. His enemies are just roadkill. And that's so real. Yeah, that's so real. Christ Jesus is dominating like Carmelo at Oak Hill. And this ain't high school. Welcome back to that post mill. I'm John, who has a cold. But you know what? Just because I have a cold doesn't mean that things aren't getting better because tomorrow I'll be I'll be healed. It'll be good, that post mill. So and also we have medicine and all sorts of technology. I'm gonna take some NyQuil and sleep like a baby. That's because that post mill. Alright, so we're looking at the binding of Satan here in that in this segment. And basically I just wanna uh, outline my article that is available on our website, thatpostmail.com, called The Binding of Satan. And I have a second part that I said I would do, but I am not ready to, to do the second part because I'm still trying to... Basically, um, I was challenged after doing that article with what it means that Satan will be released for a little while, so I'm still trying to figure that out myself. So I'm not, uh, I don't know when that article will come, will come out. I was asked the other day, and I said... Before this generation comes to pass, surely there might be a part two that comes out very soon. So, if you know your eschatology, if you know your partial preterism, you know that who knows when that will be. Um, but in Matthew, we see uh, the idea that Jesus, coming through the baptism of his cousin, John the Baptist, he, go, he immediately is called into the wilderness. And we see this in Matthew chapter 4. And in the wilderness, he's confronted by the Satan, and the Satan tempts him, and Jesus defeats him. He overcomes the Satan. And I say overcome, not only because he made it through the temptation without resisting, but later on in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 12, we see that he is being accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan. In verse 25 of Matthew 12, Jesus responds. He knows their thoughts and he says, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. So 
we see this, uh, the Pharisees, I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory. They are accusing him of satanic power. And he points out that his power is being used against Satan. His power is being used to cast out demons. And there's, it just makes no sense that Satan would cast out his own demons. So what does he say? Jesus says, the reason I can do these things is because I have gone into the strong man's house and I can plunder his house. I can do whatever I want because I have bound the strong man. And this is my interpretation of that uh, illustration Jesus gives. And this is an illustration of, of actually, I didn't make this up. This is an illustration that is very popular, especially amongst Reformed theology. The idea is that Jesus is able to do these things in Judea here because he has bound the strong man. And this idea carries on to the fact that um, his cross is seen, his, his resurrection particularly, but even his cross and uh, his death on the cross in Colossians, Paul calls a victory over the powers that be, that, that not only is the Roman Empire, but also, it, I believe it's also speaking of the spiritual powers that would, that would see the Son of God crucified. Uh, Paul in Colossians says that this looked like it was going to be a victory for those powers, but actually he humiliated them and he made a spectacle of them. We also see in Romans 1 that Paul, uh, Paul says that the resurrection of Jesus means that he is worthy to be called the Son of God because his resurrection was the defeat or the victory over death itself. And this idea of death being the champion of the kingdom of sin, this is Satan's greatest champion. This is what he uses to manipulate and to keep fear and terror over the people, to do his will um, all throughout history until, of course, the kingdom of God has come in Christ. So the idea of the binding of Satan, and we, we look now at Revelation 20, which I believe is where Colin will definitely want to come in and discuss. But when we see in Revelation 20 is this idea, uh, verse 1 in Revelation 20, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And just want to stop here. A thousand years, and whether you're uh, in the in the Reformation view of eschatology, whether you're amill or postmill, the idea of this thousand years we understand to be symbolizing a long time. There is not is not a literal thousand years. It that's just not how the Hebrew people use numbers. It's not how they 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 talked. And Bojidar Marinov also in our last episode in his interview did a great job of explaining that very briefly. But this idea of this thousand year reign of Christ is a, uh, it means a significant uh, amount of years of time in which this kingdom, this, this thousand year reign will be. So we see in verse three, and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed after these things, he must be released for a short while. And so this is really the text where we see, for me, in my article, which is what we're discussing, when I add up the idea of, of Christ overcoming the Satan, of binding the strong man, of having his successful gospel movement, of his death on the cross being this victory over the powers, of his, of his resurrection being this sign of victory over death itself and over, over the kingdom of sin, and all that's left, by the way, in Romans 1.5 is now the obedience of the nations. Um, I just understand that all this is possible because Christ 
Um, God in Christ, through his gospel, through his work, through his ministry, has bound Satan, meaning that Satan no longer has the authority he once had. Now, I need to add also, I need to point this out. It's very important to know that Satan it did not disappear from the world. He is not gone. Uh, Peter says he, he roams the earth like a lion seeking whom he may devour. Jesus prays. He teaches us to pray that, Father, deliver us from the evil one. Um, deliver us from temptation and the evil one. This is a prayer that we're called to pray. Uh, we call it the Lord's Prayer. So it's very evident in Scripture that Satan is not gone. He's not... It's not that he's just quiet, has tape on his mouth, and he's sitting in a closet somewhere just waiting to be released. But what it does mean, I believe, is that he is not king of anyone. He is no longer any authority in that sense. He is a deceiver still. He is still influential. He is behind apostasy. For example, we see that many times in, in the New Testament. He is behind false teaching. Uh, Jesus defines lies as being from Satan, for Satan is the father of lies, and he has lied from the beginning. We see this in John's gospel. So I think that Jesus, Jesus and the apostles teach that Satan is present in the world, but he is bound and that he cannot deceive the nations. He cannot stop the gospel from spreading. From He cannot stop the victory that is started at the resurrection, at the cross and resurrection of Jesus. So that's basically where I'm at. Yeah. And just tying in with that, because I used to hold the exact same view, Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2 speak of Christ having been raised from the dead and seating in, seated in the heavenly places. And then he uses that illustration and says that we are spiritually uh, raised up with him and seated in the heavenly places. And so we're in a posi in a heavenly position. So when I come to Revelation 20, I'm just going to read through this again and just kind of walk you through my view. There's a lot that we have in common. Um, it says, Then I saw an angel come down from heaven, holding in his hands the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. When a dispensationalist or, um, a, or a historic premillennialist comes to this passage, they see it as following on the coattails of what happened just before. So sequentially following what happens in chapter 19, which they see as the bodily advent of Christ, which is why they see this all happening in the future. Um, and the reason that we don't agree with that is because, as you were saying, the binding started during the ministry of Christ. And all of those passages that you brought up with prove that. But my view would be the, that of B.B. Warfield, which is that both the binding and the loosing happen at the same time. On the surface, that sounds crazy because it doesn't seem to make sense how he could be both bound and loosed at the same time. But I go to Revelation chapter 12, for my comparative reference here. And so here's what, here's what Revelation 12 says, starting in verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. 
And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. So, in this view, the binding is binding from heaven, and the loosing is loosing on earth. So Satan is cast out of heaven to earth. Now, the problem that most people see with this in Revelation 20 is that clearly it says he's bound for a thousand years, and when the thousand years were ended, he's released for a little while. So if you take the temporal sequence, the chronology, literally, it doesn't make any sense. But my contention is that if you take the chronology literally, you have a different problem. Because notice how it says that he was not the, he will not deceive the nations until the thousand years were ended. After the thousand years were ended, he's released for a little while. So when is Satan released? At the end of the thousand years. Going on to the next verse, Then I saw thrones and seated on them where those who had the authority of the judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus Christ, for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Same period of time that Satan is bound. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Now most people would say, that the binding of Satan occurs for the thousand years, but they'd say that he's released a little while, they'd say that he's released for a little while before the resurrection happens. But here it says the resurrection happens at the end of the thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Pretty much everybody agrees that that is the final resurrection and judgment, the resurrection of the body on the last day. The problem with that is that happens at the end of the thousand years, which is when it says that Satan is released. So if you take, if you take the chronology literally, then you have Satan being loosed for a little while at the same time as the bodily resurrection, as opposed to a little bit before it, and then there's a rebellion and stuff like that. So in this view, um, the defeat of Satan, which happens here, and is not speaking of a you know a final battle at the end of the thousand years, because uh, this view doesn't take the chronology literally. It sees the chronology as uh, a change of view in the vision. Because remember, this is a vision that John is given from the angel. He was signified these things by visions. And so when he sees this vision, in the vision he's seeing the thousand years ending and Satan being released for a little while. But what I'm saying is that that's not a chronological depiction. He's actually looking in heaven and seeing the thousand years and then looking on earth and seeing the little season of Satan. So this, in this view, the thousand years pertains to the souls who'd been beheaded being taken to heaven. So remember in Revelation chapter 12, uh, it says, Now the salvation, the power of the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Christ has come for the accuser of our brother has been thrown down. So away from where these people are. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of his testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. So these people died and went to heaven. 
and Satan is thrown down from heaven, so he can't accuse them while they're there in heaven anymore. That's the picture that we're looking at. Because remember back in Job, in the old times, um, like Job chapter 1, verse 6, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them. So Satan came among the other angels up to heaven. And that's where he accuses Job of only loving God because God gave him stuff. Right? Well, imagine if that were able to happen even after Job dies and goes to heaven. This is the difference. This is what's happening. Satan is no longer able to accuse the brothers. He's thrown down to earth. And remember, at the end of this section in, in Revelation 12, it says, But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Well, how long was his time after he was cast down? Uh, uh, in, uh, in Revelation 20, after that, he must be released for a little while. His time is short, a little while. I'm saying it's actually the same period of time. So in this view, the first resurrection, which is depicted just after this, starting in, in, uh, in verse 4 of Revelation 20, rather than being regeneration, which I, you know, I agree that that symbol is used elsewhere in Scripture, but I'm saying that rather than being regeneration, it's actually the intermediate state. So the intermediate state would be after people die and go to heaven, before there is the second resurrection, the resurrection of the body. So it's the those who were in Christ die and are, their soul is taken to heaven. That's the first resurrection. And that's where the thousand years occurs in heaven. The thousand years is this state of perfection that we experience before the consummation. So the little while that Satan is loosed, loosened is the millennium, is the thousand years is the same period of time. So the millennium then is a picture of heaven and the little season is a picture of earth during that. And there's a reason why this all ties in and I'll actually get to that in a sec, but... Isn't the, the idea of a thousand years meant to be like a long period of time, not just a little while? Right. I'll, I'll, I'll get to that too, actually. Okay. Let, let me go give some other text from Scripture where we see the same picture. Uh, in Luke 10, starting at verse 17, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you the authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that your spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So here he, here he even says that while they're on earth, they're given power over Satan because Satan fell from heaven. So just because the millennium is occurring in heaven in this view, that doesn't mean that it doesn't pertain to us because we are citizens of heaven. So as citizens of heaven, we're also included in the resurrection that the saints have to heaven, if that makes sense. So I think that it's kind of a little bit of both. Like I, I kind of blend the two views together because I see that there's a lot of overlap, right? And then in John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And so I see that as a post-millennial promise that, Satan has been cast out from heaven, and what happens between now and the end is all people being drawn to him throughout the course of history. Now let's go back to Revelation 20 and answer your question about the relationship of the thousand years to the little season. What happens at the end of Revelation chapter 20? Defeat of Satan, judgment before the great white throne. After that, in Revelation chapter 21, we have the new heavens and the new earth. And this is what it says. Then I saw, so this is a new vision. Then I saw 
a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. In this view, this is a progressive view through history. Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem continues to come down from heaven as the sons of God are revealed from heaven. This is when heaven is coming to earth. So when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that's something that's happening and God is accomplishing. And it says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Remember before the dwelling place of God was in heaven alone and in the temple. But now that we are the temple, the dwelling place of God is with man. And so as the church, as the new Jerusalem, we have God dwelling in us. Since God dwells in us, Satan is bound from us. And that's why we are given the keys of heaven to bind and loose. You remember those given to the disciples? That's why those are given to the church. The keys to bind and loose from heaven and on earth are given to the disciples because the dwelling place of God is with man. The authority to bind Satan is with the church, and we bind Satan progressively in a sense by adding citizens of heaven because he's not able to deceive citizens of heaven. And so those people are, as citizens of heaven, he's bound from them. And so as heaven continues to come to earth, his territory is diminished. And so when it says that his time is short, or he will be released for a little while, the concept here is that, you know, uh, he's on his last leg. Not necessarily of the time period itself is literally short, just like the thousand years is not literally a thousand years. It's symbolic of perfection. And a long time, sure you can say that it's symbolic of a long time, but consider the promise made to the Israelites by God. Psalm 105, verse 8. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he's commanded for a thousand generations. This is First uh, Chronicles 16, 15. Remember his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. Verbatim, the same thing. Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Mm. Now, some translations, and the one that I'm looking at actually says to thousands of those who love me, but it's actually in parallel to the third and fourth generation in, in likeness to those other verses I was citing about the thousand generations. The visiting of the sins on the fathers is to the third and fourth generation. Now, what number in Revelation is likened unto third or fourth generation? The closest thing we have to that is the three and a half years, right? Does that sound familiar? <laughs> the three and a half years, which as a preterist, I believe, pertains primarily to the um, 42 months that Nero persecuted the church and waged war on Jerusalem. That three and a half years was a little season for Satan. That was a time period that Satan had to rally his troops, if so to speak, against the church. That was a time period of tribulation for the church. And time periods of tribulation continue to happen periodically through history as Satan tries to continually tries to destroy the church. But we know that it ultimately won't succeed because, as we were looking at in Revelation 21, 
heaven is coming to earth. He's losing territory because he's only allowed to deceive nations that are on earth. He can't deceive nations that are in heaven. So as heaven comes to earth, he loses, he loses territory with which he's able to deceive. And so just as the third and fourth generation of wrath is compared to the thousands of generations of steadfast love, so also the little season of Satan is compared to the thousand years that we have in Christ. So it's also a comparative number, the three and four generations, uh, comparatively smaller than the thousand generations. Likewise, the little season of Satan is comparatively smaller than the thousand years, not in time period per se, but in the extent of his ability to act and gather people against the saints. Because that's what's happening in Revelation 20. We can go back and look at Revelation 20. After Satan is released for a little season, it says, When the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are in the four corners, Gog and Magog, gather them to battle. Their numbers like the sands of the sea, and they march up over the broad plain of the earth, surround the camp of the saints, the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. So here Satan tries over and over again to destroy the camp of the saints, the beloved city, the new Jerusalem. He tries to destroy it, but he can't. He fails every single time, and ultimately, the ultimate result of his continued failure is being cast into the lake of fire. As heaven comes down to earth, Satan's territory is progressively reduced, and though he is completely unbound on earth, he ultimately fails. That's one of the crazy differences between Warfield's view and other post-millennials' view of the binding of Satan, is that those who hold that there will be a little rebellion near the end actually believe that the Great Commission ultimately fails even though Satan is bound. So Satan is bound, unable to deceive the nations, and there's still a rebellion of people who were not saved. But in Warfield's view, where he believed that every last man would be saved by the last day, progressing all the way through a never-ending increase of peace, um, the permanent cessation of war, as we see in Isaiah chapter 9, because Satan is progressively defeated in history, even though he's loosed, the Great Commission succeeds. So compare those two views. Satan is bound, the Great Commission fails. Versus, Satan is loose, and the Great Commission still succeeds. So that is, in essence, Warfield's view um, concerning the binding. We can probably go into other things about Warfield's view in the future, but... Yeah, Martin Celebrity also holds that view, and he articulates it in... Sorry, I'm holding the book in my hand. It's the Journal of Christian Reconstruction, for, which is a Chalcedon publication. And this particular one is volume 15 from the winter of 1998 called the Symposium on Eschatology. In it, he has... It's called Reconstructing Postmillennialism. And so what, what Martin Celebrity does in that, in that um, journal article essay is articulate... Warfield's view of no second rebellion, no no second humiliation before the second advent. Wow, that's awesome, man! Like, uh, yeah, I don't I don't have a retort, man. Actually, like some of the questions I had that were keeping me from making this the part two, yeah, are answered in that view. In the traditional view, they would believe that the the little period of time at the loosing of Satan is when Satan goes back to you could say the gather the tares from among the wheat gather the wicked from among the righteous and mm -hmm. attempt a final revolt, which ultimately fails, of course, as every view holds. But the difference is that because Warfield doesn't believe there is, because there's a permanent cessation of war in Isaiah 9, that's the increase of his government that has no end. 
and of peace, there is an, an increase of peace that has no end, then there can't be a second rebellion. Right. We'll come back in just a few minutes to give you guys some resources. Stay tuned. Psalm 2 and 12, uh-huh. kiss the son of Paris. If you're waiting for him to come and reign and you're in error. On the throne of David, the Savior's already there. This is something that some in the church are not aware of. All right, we're back with that post mail. Uh, thanks for listening this week. Um, if you want to get more information about covenant theology, there's a book that you can pick up called Christ of the Covenants by O. Palmer Robertson. That book is also um, one of the required reading books for Reformed Theological Seminary's Covenant Theology class. Now, you don't have to take the class to learn from the lectures because the lectures from that class by Ligon Duncan are available for free on RTS through iTunes U. So you can pick those up on iTunes, listen to the Covenant Theology lectures. He walks through the terminology, the history of Covenant Theology, the the scriptures regarding Covenant Theology, all of that stuff, and ties it all together. Matthew McMahon also has some sermon audio lectures on covenant theology where he goes into a lot more detail on specifically the covenant of work, covenant of grace, and covenant of redemption. So check all of those out if you want to get some more info. Definitely. Um, I would definitely like to, um, I want to second the uh, O. Palmer Robinson. Um, I, I just remember just getting out of high school and, and, and beginning to read his stuff on covenant and on Israel and the church. And I mean, it really, it really definitely challenged me. So Definitely pick that up. I would rep- I would uh, recommend Charles Hodge. Uh, Charles Hodge has a few things. There is an abridged version. It's called Theology of Charles Hodge, I believe, and it's an abridged version, um, and it's kind of updated a little bit. But there's a whole section on the Covenant of Redemption in there that is just really good. Um, it's actually um, I read it many years ago. I would say in 2001 when I first became, uh, came to Reform Theology, and it. I put that book down and I, I just was convinced and understood that there was a great redemption, a great agreement that took place before the foundation of the world for, for me and for, for my people. So um, I definitely recommend Charles Hodge. Um, I just want to also recommend his son, A.A. Hodge, did a commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith called the Confession of Faith that really helps to get into covenant. He really expounds more on a lot of issues, but I would definitely recommend that if you can find... Uh, Confession of Faith by A.A. Hodge. It would help with this overall understanding of uh, covenant theology, reform theology, and it really helps with our just how saturated we are with dispensationalism in our church and in our culture. Um, it's really good to get to get um, become familiar with with the confessions. I would recommend also, man, I have a little sermon up here by Charles Spurgeon actually uh, called "Satan Among the Saints." I, I just looked it up online on uh, www.gospelweb.net. Spurgeon Sermon Notes is the back, backslash Spurgeon Sermon Notes. But he talks about just what it means, uh, some practical things that it means that Satan is bound. He starts off in Job 1.6 and goes through a lot of the texts that Colin and I have mentioned and just really challenges ministers and Christians to be in church and to be faithful to the uh, to the scriptures and to believe what the Bible says and to submit ourselves to our elders and also to help pray and hold our, our ministers and leaders accountable. And that's really the greatest resource that we could recommend at that post mail is your local church, uh, a church that is Bible believing. Um, I would just go online and, and, and type in Calvin, Marks of a Healthy Church, or um, even... Uh, 
Dr. Mark Dever has a has a lot coming from Calvin, but what it looks like to have a healthy church. And there's just a few things that a church really needs. But man, there's there, I guarantee you that you have a healthy church in your area, more than likely, that that you can get involved in, that you can become a member at if you're not already. So I would recommend that if you really want to be a part of the gospel movement, if you want to be a part of Dominion, if you want to see this under if you really want to help in this movement in which Satan's territory is being taken from him as heaven rushes into this broken world. You need to be in church. You need to be serving a local church. You need to be in sacrament, the Lord's Supper. You need to be baptized, all these things. And this isn't for your salvation. It's it's for more than that. It's, it's more than just heaven. This is for being a useful, flourishing human being that you're always intended to be. And the way to do that is to be in church. So that would be, uh, fellas, a few resources off the top of my head, but ultimately the greatest resource of all would be to be involved in the Bride of Christ in the local church. If you want to learn more about errors of dispensationalism and that sort of thing, check out Apologia Radio and at uh, apologiaradio.com. They have tons and tons of resources related to eschatology. You can search through their stuff. And they, they've had dozens and dozens of guests who have amazing stuff to say on on the issue, including Martin Celebrity. They had an, an interview with him on, and he talked a little bit about Warfield's view on that as well. Also, you can check out AmericanVision.com. They have tons and tons of articles also relating to eschatology. You can search by eschatology or dispensationalism and definitely pick up Gary DeMar's Last Day's Madness. It's probably the most thorough, concise explanation of why dispensationalism is wrong and it walks through uh, the the Olivet Discourse, goes through all of the typical passages that dispensationalists will cite from the New Testament and, and so on. So definitely pick that up. And with that, gentlemen, I think that's a wrap. So we will see you guys next week on Dat Postmill. Get us at datpostmill.com. Follow us on Twitter. Find us on Facebook. Protect us from the werewolf. And the meat, Jesus said that the earth they shall inherit. Some think it's getting worse for how Jesus removed the curse. He has dominion from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. Now he's reigning from heaven. May all the kings bow down before him and all nations serve him. Psalm 72, 11. This an anthem that this song is not an apologetic This is a song that lets you know Christ is king cause I read it If you want a debate name a time and place And we'll get it yes. The progression of the kingdom of God is where my head is uh, A post millennial age Is where we're headed Christ is conquering the nations Yeah I said it Jesus the Messiah brought the expected Kingdom on time and as planned He is seated And reigning now his kingdom will grow in history through the preaching of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. The world will experience the transformational blessings that peace with God brings. Jesus will return for the resurrection of the just and the unjust after, after all his enemies are put under his feet in victory. The last enemy is death.